0: Don't we have a fantastic father? My heart was encouraged as we were spending that time singing. I needed that. Um, The last two days, I've been with eight other guys on the trail, Appalachian Trail. um, 16 miles in two days over some difficult hills. If you see some guys around the church campus that... uh, have kind of a hip walk. Uh, It's not because they're cool, it's because of their hip. (laughs) But it was a great time. What a neat thing to be now in the house of the Lord, in which we're able to celebrate his goodness in our life. We've been moving through series on Luke, so if you turn over there to chapter 2, I'll meet you there in a moment. We've been thinking about the idea of the certainty of the Savior, In other words, Luke was written, as we've said and will say, uh, it was written so that you could be secure, you can be certain. The things that you believe about Christ, as they align up with Scripture, they're on target. They're right, they're trustworthy, they're true, they're reliable, however you want to connect that. That's why we're studying this. Now we gathered through chapter 1, we saw pictures of Zechariah. We saw a picture of an angel, Gabriel. Then we had Mary. And we have this slow building of the story that something dramatic is going to happen. John the Baptist is coming. The Christ is coming. And today we venture into the announcement of that. Which has to prick my mind to think to myself, the angels that are involved in this, this hasn't happened for some Really, five to six hundred years, the idea of angels being involved like this. And one question I'd like you to consider is, is what do angels live for? That's the title even this morning. What do angels, or what angels live for? Because this is uh, an important question, because whatever they live for, whatever they're interested in, whatever they promote, is the idea of what is the greatest 1994 there was a movie called angels in the outfield if you remember this movie the whole story was the idea of the california angels the struggling baseball team the idea of this family coming back together and one gentleman in the middle of the movie said when the angels win the pennant that's when this family will be reunited and the whole movie is about angels coming down and picking up players to make these fantastic catches, these these home run saving catches, and the whole way through the movie. And at the end of the movie, you find out the coach was actually an angel. And the idea you leave there is that um, angels are interested in your story. The problem with that story is the angels are interested in your story for the sake of you. That's the problem. See, the ideas of angels doing that. That's the kind of story we would write. But when we think of that idea of what angels live for, we've got to be very careful because if we misalign that, we can have a tendency to think that angels are really just interested in helping us for the betterment of our lives. I'm not saying angels don't better our lives. As a matter of fact, angels work in ways that we don't understand. I can testify clearly in 1989, I was in the middle of what was considered the Highlands area in the High Peaks region up near Canada. I was leading about 15 people on a survivalist program. We'd been hiking for days. We'd done the tallest mountain east of the Mississippi. Uh, we were incredibly tired. Uh, we had just enough food to make it back to where we were going to be picked up about 15 miles away. And as we were entering this one particular region of the high peaks, uh, the rangers put little, at the front of the trail heads, they put little markers telling you what's on the trail. Watch out for this, or pay attention to that, or bees here, that type of stuff. As we approached this particular marker, I noticed a backpack uh, torn in two, just shredded there. And underneath it was a warning about A bear. So there's a bear in the area. By the way, his name is Hercules, and he's big. Okay. Well, when you're about 20 miles from a ranger station and about 45 miles from a road, uh, you pay attention to that stuff. So I said to everybody, that's okay. We're just going to do what we normally do, go through all the precautions, hang our food. where We're supposed to hang it. So we got to this particular area, and again, we're very, very tired. I asked two um, men that we had trained on how to hang food properly between two trees, certain spacings. If you hike, you understand. And in the midst of their hanging, they made a mistake. They put way too much weight in one of the packs. And we went from one rope to two ropes because it snapped. And at that moment, I knew we were going to see a bear there 's no way we can make that food secure, so what we did is we put the the food over the river, hoping to cast the scent down the river, hang some pots on the bottom, thinking if the bear is going to reach up from the bottom of the river, then he 'll hit the pots and we 'll hear the bear and come out and scare the bear. Well, I heard the pots, I told everybody to stay in your tent, I heard the pots, ran outside. Flashed my flashlight at the bottom of this oak tree, enormous oak tree that the branch had extended over the river couldn 't see the bear couldn 't see him anywhere. Then I went up the side of the tree and out the limb, and I saw Hercules about twenty feet away, enormous bear, biggest black bear i 'd ever seen and he looked directly in my eyes, then he looked down at the food standing below him on the on the rope. He put his paw down, wrapped his paw around the rope. Lifted that 150 pound pack up like you and I lift up a pen, put it in its mouth, set it in front of it and slit it from the top to the bottom with one move of his paw. Then he stuck his face in our food and began to eat. What are you going to do? Well, I got everybody out of their tents and I had not look at the bear <laughs> because the, the bear was eating the food. We didn't have any problem at that point. Then we prayed, God, would you help us? We're in the middle of nowhere. None of us are bigger than that bear. So we went to sleep. Nothing else you could do. Went to sleep. Next morning, I got up. The bear paws were all around our tents. It walked all between our tents. Eat all the food. We had no food left. We had 15 miles to hike out. We were starving. And two faith-filled young men said, we're going to pray for food. And I said, okay, go ahead. You pray for food. There's no one out here. We're by ourselves. It was raining. We found ourselves in a lean-to, uh, just a three-sided hut. We're laying there. And these two men started praying, two young boys, probably 17 started praying, asking God, would you be kind to us? Would you provide us food? Enough for us to to fill our stomachs so that we can make it out. We recognize you're the creator of these woods. They went on. Amazing. I fell asleep. The next thing I know, I'm being rustled awake. These two young men are standing in front of me, and everybody's huddled around them, and they're laughing. And in the midst of them, they have this food. And I said, what in the world are you, where did you get that? They said there were two people, two men, running through the woods. And they stopped and they said, uh, do you guys want some food? <laughs> I said, hold on a second, where did they come from? And they said, that way. There was no trail that way. I'd been all over those woods. And they were running through the woods. Who runs through the woods? Then, when they pulled open their backpack, they pulled out a giant turkey loaf. The other opened his backpack. He had a loaf of bread. So how many people run with turkey loaf and a loaf of bread? Pulled it out. They gave it to us. And they said, all right, have a good day. And they ran off. I said, where? And they said, there. And I said, there's no path there. 1989, I think I had an intersection with angels. That's what I think. Nothing fits. I think at that point, it's not so much baseball and angels in the outfield, but I think that God cares for people. I don't want to minimize the idea of angels and what they do. I don't want to make it so cerebral that we don't think that they care for us. But the thing is this. Be careful. And we'll see it today. What is it that angels live for? I think it has a direct connection to God and his glory. And I think that the care and well-being of his people are involved in that. In the story we're going to see this morning, uh, the idea of the Hollywood idea of angels is, uh, I think, going to evaporate. But what I don't want you to ever think is that angels don't care for us. But they care for us because God cares for us. They're messengers from God to further his message of who he is and what he's come to do in christ so in the passage before us we've been thinking through this this is the greatest passage in which to this point you can look at the um israelites coming out of egypt you can look at isaiah in the temple you can look at whatever story you want david and goliath this is the greatest interaction in the history of humanity to this point of the supernatural meeting the natural. Of God condescending. Of opening the eyes of people. And what he does is he meets with people you'd never expect. People like shepherds. In a field. Keeping watch over sheep. And then what he says is off a Richter chart. You can't, you can't measure the profound nature of what they're about to say. We're going to be able to read it this morning. And I know it's not Christmas time. But this is the greatest gift that they're going to announce. If you're over in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, let's read through this. It says this, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. First thing I'd like you to see is how incredibly unlikely an audience this angel showed up to. In verse 8, in that same region there were shepherds out in the field. What an unlikely audience. Uh, If I'm writing this story, if Hollywood's writing this story, we're showing up to the priests, aren't we? In your face, you missed it, or this is what I've been talking about. This is what you've been ministering to. This is why the sacrifices have existed. This is why everything, all of history has come to this moment, and I would map the thing out, and I would have the picture of what it's all going to look like, but it doesn't show up to priests. Doesn't show up to the social elite. You'd think that if there's anybody who would say they deserve it as the social elite, you know, people that are into themselves, they would naturally think, if God's going to show up to anybody, it's not going to show up to the priest because those guys sometimes are on the take. It's going to show up to us. We're the, we're the in crowd. Clearly, we're the favored by God because we've got the money. That's how they would measure people back then. If you're blessed, you've got a lot of kids. You, you have a big house. Sometimes it's like that today, isn't it? Your easy street. Why does God bless that person when they're so evil? Sometimes you get caught up in that, don't you? I think these people would have been saying, "We're the ones if he's going to show up. Didn't come up the social league, came up with the shepherds." What about the kings of the earth? What about that person? I've had people say to me if God is real, could write my name in the sky. Have you ever had that? I've actually had people say that. Show me right now. I actually saw an interview once where the guy said, if God's real, strike me dead right now. And he paused. Didn't get struck dead. And he goes, aha, see? What a fool. As if God is beckoning to him. As if God is somehow so concerned about what he thinks. I think that's like the idea of the kings. It makes sense that if you were a king, you'd think that if the celestial world is going to speak, it's going to speak to us because we're the leaders of men. Isn't it true that people in this world get so full of themselves and thinking they're important? And because they're important to other people, they must be important to God. And if God's going to do anything, he's going to go through us. But this unlikely audience... A bunch of shepherds. Can I tell you, though, I think that this is the perfect audience. Why do I say this? In this region where it says they were out in the field keeping watch of their flock by night, this is most likely the, the fields about six miles south of Jerusalem, uh, in which there would be flocks here for the majority of the year, except for about three, maybe three and a half months. And they'd be spending time here. They'd be gathering together in a fold. This is at night, so they've gathered them all together and they're in a a wooded wooden pen, maybe a large wooden pen. Could be in a cave or a series of caves near each other. That's in the area. And they're spending time there together watching over these sheep. And these sheep had a particular value to the shepherds. These were the sheep that most likely, most likely all of them, would find themselves involved in the sacrificial offerings in the temple. As they'd be raised up, they would be taken up to Jerusalem. And there they would be sacrificed for the sins of people, for the longing for the day of God sending a consolator, a Messiah that would come to this earth. I I can imagine these shepherds hanging out in the field, They would have certain roles. They'd keep them safe. They'd keep them secure. And they'd be saying things like, new shepherd boy shows up. Why do we do this anyhow? Some old gray beard shepherd says, we do this because God has said sin matters. We've got to take it serious. There's got to be a payment for sin. And so that's why we sacrifice. We sacrifice. It's not a... a, blood and gory thing. It's not a horror movie. It's the idea that God takes sin seriously. And you know what? Let me tell you something. He takes sin so seriously that someday he's going to repair it all. We don't know exactly how, but we know that one day he's going to do something that's going to reconcile the celestial and the earthly. But for now, we take care of the sheep. And by the way, watch out for that one over there. A little blemish going on. Let me explain what the blemishes are. You go into it all. Orienting them not on just being a shepherd, but being a facilitator of the sacrifices that were looking to the ultimate Savior to come. This has been going on for years and years. You see, these shepherds were the lowest of society, but they were integral to the plan of God through the sacrificial system social elite and kings and priests could talk a good game but these guys lived it out but no one would have thought they would come to the shepherds and yet the shepherds were constantly meditating on why we exist and what we're doing here if you look over in chapter 215 it says when the angels went away into heaven the shepherds said to one another let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that had happened which the lord has made known to us Pastor Larry is going to walk through that. But I've just got to tell you something. That after the angels appeared to the shepherds, they're not commanded to go. Did you notice that? They're not commanded. Go see the baby. They said, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing has happened. In other words, we've been at this for so long. We've been shepherds. We want to be in on it. Didn't explain it away. They said, we want to find out what's going on. Because... Their role had been so cemented as taking care of these, these sheep, they want to know what's going on. And then in verse 20, it says, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God. All they had seen, heard, and seen, it had been told to them. In other words, they were erupting. And notice that idea of glorifying and praising God. That's very important as we get into this passage. As we go further, if you think to yourself you ever thought of yourself as an outsider? Have you ever thought that God is on some people's side and not yours? Have you ever thought to yourself that you're not nearly what you ought to be? I bet that's the kind of story that the shepherds would talk about. They're outside of society. They're just working. They're just making things happen. But isn't it good to know that this unlikely audience is an awful lot like you? Maybe not have it all together, but God shows up like he does in this story. We move from the unlikely audience. Look at verse 9. An unfamiliar guest, we're going to call this. An unfamiliar guest in verse 9. It says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, you might might notice a pattern here, and I think, if I'm putting my money down, it's Gabriel. It doesn't say that in the passage. In chapter 1, it says Gabriel showed up. Zachariah. Gabriel showed up to Mary. It doesn't say it here. And it says that he appeared. That word has the idea of they're either in a cave surrounding it, the shepherds near the front of the cave, the sheep and back, so they can keep them safe. Maybe a pen. They could be near the doorway of the pen. If you remember in John 10, Jesus talks about himself as the doorway. Shepherds would understand this because they'd get them into a pen and the shepherd would lay in the doorway. So that he would protect anybody going in or out, and then if a shepherd showed up the next morning, he would call out for his sheep, make some noise, some tone, and the sheep that knew him would come out of the pen and follow him, and that's what they would do. They'd follow the other shepherd and follow. The, that's how it would work. So when they're here and they're in a fold, they're near the front of the gate. Picture it. The angel of the Lord appears. One moment he's not there dark night, black night, and all of a sudden he is there. Can you picture it? Do you have it in your mind? The celestial being that there's not a dear light in this world that has enough lumens to illuminate the area shows up and it says, and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. We're going to get back to the glory of the Lord, but I want you to see that in Luke 1, you have the same pattern, an appearance, a fear, a fear, a comfort, a message, and then a sign. Same thing in chapter 1, and that's why I think it's Gabriel. Same exact pattern happens. And then that idea of the glory of the Lord. Let's not rush past that. What is that exactly? We talk about a lot of things like, uh, let's give glory to God, let's glorify the Lord. Do you know there was a time in which uh, no one said that? No one thought about that. Before Genesis 3, you would naturally glorify the Lord. Because you're an image bearer. You didn't have to do anything to glorify the Lord. By your very being, you would glorify the Lord. Because God would see his image in you, and he would see his perfections radiating back. He would be glorified, and you'd be filled with joy. Because you were doing what you are created to do. Not doing something To give God glory, being because God had put his image and stamp on you. Isn't that incredible? But then, sin enters the situation. Have you ever wondered why Adam and Eve were driven from the garden? Have you ever wondered why the angel is posted to not let them back in? Some people have said, well, if they get back in, they'll eat from the everlasting tree, and they'll live forever in that condition. That sounds like Hollywood to me. I don't think that was it at all. I think if they get back in near the glory of God, they'll be incinerated, because God's glory is in that garden. See, when they fell, the image of God was still present, but now there is sin, and God has to judge sin. And God has to put some distance between Adam and Eve and Himself. Not because He doesn't want to be with them, but because if He's with them, He'll incinerate them because of His glory. Because of his holiness. Years ago, when I was about 13 years old, getting into camping, there's some camping theme going on here. I'm sorry, people, if you don't like to camp, but I've done a lot of it. We were camping, and somebody brought Diet Pepsi with them. Uh, if you're a teenager, uh, the last thing you want to drink is Diet Pepsi. Somebody, somebody among us said, uh, what are we going to do with this Diet Pepsi? And they said, well, let's throw it in the fire. Made perfect sense to us. By the way, I'm not responsible for anything that might happen based on the story I'm about to tell. The liability's on you. Kids, don't do this. Okay, now we'll get past it. So we threw that can of Diet Pepsi into fire. It was a pretty good fire, by the way. We went out and played wiffle ball, big wiffle ball players when I was growing up we were coming back around our tents after playing wiffle ball for probably 45 minutes to an hour, we were probably 20 feet from the fire, and a giant explosion took place. Blew the fire all over the place. And as we were, kept walking after we got ourselves together, there was this giant mist that rose above the campfire, and the wind caught it and blew it in our faces. It was the remnants of Diet Pepsi. It had been incinerated. It had been absolutely liquefied into a mist. When I think of this idea of the glory of the Lord, if it wasn't for the fact of God's grace, it would have been liquefied, been a mist. We see this in Exodus chapter 33, 18 through 23. Moses, remember the story, please show me your glory. God said, I'll make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for a man shall not see me and live. In other words, I've got to dial it down. Because if you see all of who I am, the problem is you are not who you were created to be. Something happened. He said here, he said, "Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. You'll be incinerated, Moses, because what you don't know is who I am, and my glory, if not altered, if not filtered, will incinerate you says this again in Exodus chapter 40, when the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, came in, it moved in, excuse me, into the tent. And then you see the tabernacle be built and the glory enters in Ezekiel chapter 43, 1 through 12. And then it leaves the temple in Ezekiel chapter 10. And the glory of the Lord has not been present in a visible form in 600 years. And now in this passage we have before us, And the glory of the Lord shone around them. This filtered, reflecting off the angel in some way that we don't totally understand. And they were filled with great fear. Great fear. If somebody ever tells you they had a conversation with Christ or they had a that God took them to heaven or God took them here or God did something like that. They had a conversation kind of like at a bus station. You show up, you're waiting for your bus. Jesus talked to me at this bus station. Don't believe him for a second. See, when the Lord shows up, you realize who you are. If the person doesn't have great fear, it's not the Lord because it's a natural reaction to the presence of the Lord. This humbling. If people talk about a worship service, we've talked about this before, and they said the Lord was really present. Ask them a couple of questions. Well, how do you know the Lord is present? Oh, the music was fantastic. The music was bumping. I love that song. Man, we were so loud. We were so this. And you keep talking to them. And there's no sense of the exalted nature of Christ. And there's no stirring of deep conviction of personal sin. Can I propose to you It was a great band, but the Holy Spirit wasn't in the room. You see, you'll always find the trademark of God showing up is he'll be exalted and you'll be humbled every time. If it's not there, be careful. Somebody's pushing bargain brand Christianity. Because when we see this unfamiliar guest show up, we see they're filled with great fear. And now, what do they move toward? Next is the idea of the unimaginable message. Look at verse 10 and 11. The angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice the descriptor. Of that. Good news of great joy. This news is going to knock your socks off. Great joy. All the people. Notice the the expanse of this. All the people. Good news. Great joy. But can I train your eye to two words that absolutely who make it an unimaginable message, not just for this moment, but for this time. Look there, it says, this day. This day. This day. This 24-hour period of time is when the baby, who will change everything, has been born. Now remember something. We've been talking about the last couple weeks, the sovereign faithfulness of God. It's not just merely about this moment, but this time frame. Remember, Caesar Augustus is put in power. We walked through his life last week. Caesar Augustus is put in power. The, the God-man, according to the Romans, which ushers in the, the Pax Romana, or literally the Roman peace in Latin, till 180 AD. So roads were established. The Greek language is taken off. Commerce. All of these things are taking place making it a pristine moment, or as Paul would say, in the fullness of time. In other words, time is absolutely pregnant. And in this moment, on this day, when this is being said, gives birth. But notice, God has moved all the pieces around the board. So they're perfectly in place. So when the angel shows up, for unto you is born this day, in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Not for one moment should you think that God's not in control ever again. Perfectly in control. Now, you might feel like it's not in control, but through the eyes of faith, absolutely in control. And Theophilus who this has been written to, Luke is writing this, gathering this together for Theophilus, something was going on in his life in which he was wanting to be sure of the things he'd been taught, 1 verse 4. In other words, he'd been catechized in the fact that God is a sovereign God and history has been his, his place in which he was painting redemptive history, all the way from the garden, all the way till now, and he was beginning to question And I think when Luke wrote this down, he was thinking of the glory of God and reminiscing, I'm sure, Theophilus. I mean, there's no other way. What you've been taught is absolutely true. You can't make this stuff up. God has been manipulating an emperor and all of the related details for this very moment, this day. And notice he says in the city of David. We've been laboring that point. The city of David is the... The place in which the Savior was meant to be born, Micah 5-2, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Are you too little among the clans of Judah? From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from the ancient of days. It's that this is the one the Messiah is coming through. The city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. No definite article here in the original language which says Christ the Lord. In other words, he is the Christ, he is the anointed, he's the Messiah. And by the way, the Messiah is the Lord. As you look around, all the creation that the Lord has created, that little baby on this day, in this city, at this time, I'm here to announce, God has come near. Can you imagine your shepherds? That angel shows up, gives that message, bursting at the seam. And it's an unimaginable message. But then notice the next thing, which I think is fantastic. Look at verse 13 and 14. This message gives ways to an uncontainable joy, an uncontainable joy. I think, in my mind, makes sense to me, based on what angels live for, That as this angel, which I think is Gabriel, can't back that up, but I think. As he's saying this, there comes a point in which he finishes who is Christ the Lord. Or the the Christ from the Lord. And at that moment, imagine that the skies uh, have been black, dark. The angels are present, but they're not visible. When they hear that, they go off. And suddenly, means at that moment, as soon as that word is done, the Lord, boom, the heavens explode. Imagine the greatest grand finale you've ever seen on the 4th of July and put it on a million. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Couldn't hold back. I think they couldn't hold back because we see in First Peter chapter one, ten through twelve, when Peter is writing out the very notion of salvation. This is after Jesus has risen from the grave. He writes this concerning this salvation: the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of my Christ, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. That And predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In the things you have now been announced to you through those who preach to you the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Notice the last line. Things into which angels long to look. In other words. The angels have been on the sidelines and periodically called off the bench to be a messenger for God at some point in time. And they've been servicing this message that ever since the fall happened, the Messiah is going to come. And they've been wondering, how is this going to happen? How are you going to make things right, God? And as messengers they have been sitting there and periodically, and they're putting it together. I can almost picture... In a human sense, angels sitting in the bleachers, one of them goes and does something and comes back and goes, what do you do? Okay, we did this, we did Oh, wow, okay, something's happening here. Pieces are being put on the board. And then finally, when this day arrives, the angels are blown away. Hold on a second. You mean Jesus is going to come down and be part of humanity? I mean, I didn't see that coming. I mean, we've had prophets, we've had kings, we've had priests, we've had all these people in the roster of God, and all of a sudden, God himself is going to put on skin. He's going to live among the people who have dramatically betrayed him. That's incredible. i got to get in on this. And when the angel says what he says, Those angels, they they just explode. We've got to get on. It's it's natural. It's a reaction. It wasn't planned. It's just, we've got to get on this. And this is what they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The glory of God. God, you're amazing. You're incredible. We would never put this together. Glory to God in the highest. There's no higher than God. And I've got to say to us today, uh, who are you putting on the highest? Because that to me says that God's glory in the highest. The idea is there's nothing above that. So anytime you aim lower than that, to see God less than who he is, the idea of God in the highest creates worship. Because you say he's grand, he's glorious. I don't understand, but what I do understand is magnificent and Awesome. And when you find yourself in a worship service and you're just parroting the words, you're just kind of singing, stop, repent. God, help me to see you as the highest. Help me to see your glory. Help me to see that. And Jesus, his his glory is seen in Christ. If you want to see the glory of God manifest among humanity, it's in Christ. And then that last phrase, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Got to pause. That makes a differentiation between those he's pleased and he's not pleased. If we fast forward this story, he's pleased with those who are pleased with the son, the baby that was born this moment. If you align rightly with Jesus, you recognize who he is, what he said he's come to do to save people from their sins. And you recognize you're a sinner and you've trusted in him. He's pleased with you. If you think you're good enough you don't need him, or you don't think he's worthy enough because your life is more important than his glory, he's not pleased. And this is the thing with this passage. This uncontainable joy is far from you. And the angels see you as a mystery. They go, how in the world can anybody read a story like this and not fall on their face? So this morning, I've got to ask you, You're created to give God glory. Jesus is reconciled. Jesus in the form of a baby coming. The angels long to look into this. Is this something that sets your heart on fire? If it doesn't, stop, repent, and thank the Lord. Because when it doesn't set your heart on fire, it's only the grace of God that's expressed in Christ that won't let you go. Never leave you, never forsake you. Even in your moment in which you go, I should be so much more on fire for the Lord. Something is messed up. Yeah, it's your humanness. And in that moment, you say, thank you, Jesus, that even in my weakness of not seeing you and how you are, that you're kind and gracious to me. Now, would you ignite in me afresh a joy and spend time in the word and let the stories like this wash over you? few questions as we spend our time this morning. How does the mission of God inspire you? The mission of God meaning this. We've come to the greatest announcement, but the history behind this God moving the pieces around. How does that inspire you? How does it humble you? How does it make you different? How does it put distance between those people you think you want to please at work? How does it change the way you parent? How does it change the way you watch media, TV? How does it, how does it inspire you? The mission of God and who He is. Spend some time with the Lord and ask Him, inspire me. Spend time in the Word. Be overwhelmed. Second question. How does the work of God transform how you see life? You shouldn't see life. You shouldn't see that person who's a bit of a jerk or that neighbor who gets on your nerves or that family member who drives you up the wall the same again. You see, because God is moving the puzzle pieces around. You need to see beyond the individual and see, no, this is, that's, that's how I was to God. And yet he treated me with kindness. So that's how I should treat them. See how that transforms. If you see this rightly, how does it transform how you see life this morning? If the truth from Sunday doesn't make it to Monday, you need help. You need somebody to coach you in that. You need somebody to disciple you. Third question Who is in your life who needs to hear this kind of good news? Uh, Lord knows we need more good news in this world. And you have it. You have it right in front of you the good news. Of Jesus Christ coming. Who is it in your mind's eye. Friend, neighbor, co-worker, family member. Who you this week can express. I read this story on Sunday. And can I just tell you. I was blown away. God coming down. Have you ever heard of that. And just begin to give them. Some good news. Because they need it. They need to know for certain. That there's a savior. And you have the ability. To specifically tell them. And make much of who Jesus Christ is in our lives. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful. And we're not nearly as thankful as we should be. But this is an amazing story. We see what angels live for, and that's your glory. And as this story unfolded, it It's meant to humble us, to overwhelm us, to stop us in our tracks in which we start measuring everything in our life and realize everything in our life comes up way short of the truth of this story. And so we ask as a church that you'd help us to shut down those things that we see as valuable because we lay this next to them and we say, they don't matter at all. And this is really why we come together because we are so weak that we need this regular time, this once a week time in which we're seeing the stark reality of your truth and your grace and your kindness and your glory and your vastness and yet your closeness, that it humbles us and changes us. Thank you for that. Use this in our life to not merely affect us but those around us and people that are far from you. Give us a burden for people who don't know this, and are wandering in the dark, and they need the good news. And may they come to a place, through the witness of someone in this room, that you are pleased with them, because you'll use them to give the glorious gospel that you've given to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As the band is coming forward, um, as I said last week, we recognize that The truths that we talked about today, it's easy to, when you're sitting in your seat, say, yeah, I need to change here, and I need to change here, and I need to change here, and I need to think better about this, and I want to share with this person, but I'm not totally sure I know how. So in a little bit of time, I want to tell you that we have this program called Next Steps that we're starting. And the Next Steps is going to be in which there'll be a place in which you can contact, it'll be on the screen, it'll be on your teaching guide, in which you can reach out, And you can context and say, I I need to talk to somebody about this particular truth. How does it work into my life? Or maybe I just need prayer for my life. And this is a care team that's been put together that they're going to care for you. They're going to pray with you and encourage you and help you take that next step of what does it mean to take the truth that you've just heard in a message and have it reverberate into your life? Because we recognize that we think thoughts in the seats, But by the time we make it to our cars, we forget, or we don't know how to make it come to life in the light of Scripture. So that's one of the things we have coming up, and hopefully you'll avail yourself of that, and our care team has been raised up to be able to do this. We want to encourage you. We want to pray for you, and uh, because we're a church. We're one-anothering each other in the truths of God and who He is. As we stand together, we're going to sing about the faithfulness of God. And as you sing, be reminded of the truth that we've talked about together. Stand, please, as we sing.